I think the notification is the worst idea ever. I think it's something that arises out of business necessity. And, you know, like the calendaring app and like a lot of the other features of these things, they're predicated on a model of life that was appropriate to the developers. You know, they have jobs and jobs are structured and jobs require that the day be parsed up in such and such a way. We agree on the calendar to be at meetings and, um, we need to be notified of these things so we're good workers. A pattern that's appropriate to a, a knowledge worker in a multinational corporation becomes the model for all of us. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient, all through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Adam Greenfield, the author of the illuminating new book, Radical Technologies, which is essentially a field manual for how digital technology is transforming our everyday lives. I first stumbled onto Adam's work through an excerpt from his book called A Sociology of the Smartphone, in which he elegantly breaks down all of the fundamental ways in which the smartphone has utterly changed how we move through the world. And in this conversation, Adam and I use the smartphone as a jumping off point to move into a deeper dialogue about living in a world in which we're always connected. How there are always trade-offs, and in the case of our phones, how we accept the anxiety of constant accessibility in order to gain the joys of convenience. We also discuss the dematerialization that necessarily accompanies the adoption of digital tools how the photos we used to carry in our wallets, or the iconic gesture we used to make to hail a cab, have vanished to make way for the increasing sameness of interacting with just another app. It's a conversation about stepping back and reframing the way we see our relationship to digital, and to understand what we've given up and where we still have the power to set boundaries. Now let's dive in. I do want to start by talking about the smartphone and this digital trend towards what you call dematerialization. Um, you talk about a sort of huge swath of experiences and objects and even gestures that used to be a part of everyday life that have been really absorbed into the smartphone. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you think about the cities of my youth, I'm of a particular age. As, as we all are. But, you know, I was born in 1968. So for me, the city is something that um, had evolved in the years before I was born. Um, and uh, it was comprised of a series of discrete sites and locations and rituals like phone booths and like mailboxes or uh, the clocks at the corners, you know, of bank buildings or the clocks in the lobbies of department stores or of great hotels. And these were coordinating mechanisms. These were communicating mechanisms. And they were visibly, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were physically big. They were uh, visually present. Uh, and they were, in a sense, legible, right? You knew how to read their function, uh, in many cases, just by their appearance and by their form. Um, and there was a sense of urbanity that went along with this. There was a metropolitan urbanity of the mid-20th century that continues 
to provide us with our images of our, our very ideas of what it means to be a big city person. The, the glamour, the intensity, the speed, uh, the frustration, um, the complication, the exhaustion, but above all, uh, the openness to experience. And so tangled up in these things you know, are a set of, of social relations, economic relations, and political relations. And when the smartphone enters our lives, and when it begins to replace all of these rituals, these sites, these forms, and these gestures, um, we wind up mediating all of the relations that had previously been taken care of by this very wide diversity of objects and services and environments with a, a relatively small set of um, user interface provisions that are designed by an extraordinarily small and homogeneous population in a very small number of places on Earth. And I think that, as with so many of the things that I discussed, there's a trade-off, right? We wouldn't have adopted the smartphone. I mean, the, the mobile phone was the most rapidly uh, embraced technology in human history. It went from hundreds of people using them to billions of people using them in a matter of, of months. Um, I mean, you know, that time scale can be measured literally in months, which is amazing. And I would argue that, that we wouldn't have done that if it didn't serve some very powerful need for us. So it, it gives, but it also taketh away. And one of the things that it's taken away is this sense of the riotous profusion of different kinds of contexts and spaces in the city. So, you know, some of the most poignant examples of this are, you know, I talk to friends who are, you know, gay men in their 50s and 60s, and, and they say, well, you know, we used to go to these special places that were called gay bars, and um, there was a culture that came to inhabit that space. And it was a, a space apart from the way in which the rest of the city and the rest of the people in the city did their things. It was a special environment. It had its own codes. It had its own rituals. It had its own um, markers. And life was lived in these spaces more intensely for us than it was in the rest of the city. And now the kids just use Grindr, right? They find each other with this hookup app, which is the same functional logic as, uh, as Tinder, you know, and it's the same functional logic actually as, uh, you know, Snapchat or Yelp or any of these other services. And so the, the, the amazing specificity and texture of our places and the experiences that we were able to enjoy in those places gets flattened, gets compressed. Um, and it becomes subject to, you know, standardization and best practices and it's no longer quite as resonant. And when we do all of these things through the single aperture of the smartphone, yes, it's infinitely more convenient, sure, but we lose something as well. And that's something that I want to stay with. I want to stay with that melancholy. Well, I want to get more specific about these things, literally the sort of thinginess of these things that we're losing. Um, so people listening can kind of ground um, the concepts that you're talking about. So, um, you know, you mentioned clocks, you talk about, you know, this idea that we used to meet under the clock in Grand Central Station, or, you know, in terms of gestures that we would go out and stand on a street corner and hail a cab, right? These sort of iconic, you know, metropolitan gestures. And also you dig into this study that I found incredibly fascinating from, I'm not sure, I want to say 10 years, 15 years ago of what people used to carry around in their handbags, yeah. right? Yeah. And all of the things 
that have disappeared, you know, from our, from our pockets, from our handbags, because they've been absorbed into the smartphones. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of specifically just all of those like things that used to mediate our everyday lives that have kind of just really vanished, right? Dematerialized. Sure. Yeah. Um, when Flickr was a thing, you know, way back in the mists of 2004, 2005, um, there would be, uh, you know, there's this wonderful group on Flickr called What's in Your Bag. And people would dump out, you know, the contents of their pocket or their purse or their, you know, their rucksack um, and take pictures of them and share them with people. And there was a function in Flickr at that time so you could tag things. And what you would wind up doing was essentially having this really deep ethnography where people were um, detailing the ways in which they mediated everyday life through a, a series of objects. And the the commonalities were interesting, but so were the differences. Um, you know, people would, there, there would be, um, here's my wallet, and in my wallet I have credit cards, which I need to interact with things financially. And I have ID cards, which I need to afford me access to physical places. And I have... Um, you know, uh, a little um, photo booth picture of my ex because I can't stop thinking about them. Um, And that, you know, means something to me every time I open up my wallet. And I have my keys because I need to get into my flat and I have my keys for my car. And I have some subway tokens here because I need to get around. And I have some chapstick and some mints because, um, you know, I I like to have good breath when I talk to people. And there's all of these dimensions of our being in the world that were mediated by specific physical objects. And those objects um, were triggers for memory and reflection, each one of them. And they each acquired texture over time, even the wallets and the purses themselves. You know, as we carry them on our bodies throughout the day, over the course of years, they would acquire a patina, they would wear in, in certain signature ways. And their provenance would tell, right? They each, you know, we, we say that each object has a story to tell. And that was almost literally the case with these things. They would they would pick up the traces of their movement through history. And they weren't, you know, always the most convenient way of dealing with things. Like, I can't tell you the number of times you know, people lose their keys or they, um, you know, they drop their credit card when they're out drinking or something like that. And, and that was, um, that required a more difficult process of adaptation than maybe, you know, just fetching the information down from the cloud again if you don't if you temporarily don't have access to it. Um, there were frustrations that were associated with all of these material artifacts. But again, um, as as the the relations that are mediated by these things just turn into the the um, transfer of zeros and ones over uh, an immaterial network, or or at least a, a, a partly immaterial network, um, we don't have these traces of our existence. And I actually think that's, um, you know, one of the, the latent dynamics behind something like Instagram or, or selfies is that, you know, we now need to explicitly mark moments and we now need to, to kind of furnish evidenti- evidentiary proof of our transit through history because we don't have the material objects so much anymore. Well, and I want to go more into that idea of sameness, you mentioned earlier how when we're using the same device, the smartphone, and the same modality of interaction for this very diverse range of activities, which is all, which have all sort of been collapsed into the smartphone, like taking a photograph, browsing through music, checking your bank account balance, or, you know, looking for the love of your life. They all tend to take on this kind of sameness that they didn't have before. And 
in a way lose their distinct flavor, right? Everything gets a little bit flattened. What yeah. do you think kind of the impact of that is? Well, the very first thing that that is inescapable is that we don't linger with our choices anymore. Like because our choices cost us nothing. Um, there's no opportunity cost of, you know, listening to one track over another or, um, you know, watching one film over another. Like you're, you're on Netflix and you, um, you start watching a film and it just doesn't capture you within the first three minutes. You're like, oh, I'm just, I don't have time to sit through this and watch it develop. I'm going to watch something else. And firstly, there's an inherent disrespect to the creative intelligence in that because somebody's put a lot of time and effort into trying to communicate uh, a human experience. And not all human experiences flower in the first, you know, two or three seconds of our encounter. As a matter of fact, most of the ones that matter at all take some time to gestate and become what they are. Um, so, you know, our culture becomes flattened um, because it's more and more scripted to deliver a hook within the first immediate encounter. Um, but the second thing is that we begin to transfer that, I think, through the commonality of user interface and, and, and the user experience, we begin to transfer that into human relations. And um, I do think it begins to percolate. I mean, it's been a while since I've dated, right? So I've, I've never, I'm not of the, the Tinder generation. Um, but what I've heard from friends is that um, we market ourselves in very much the same way that any other product is marketed. We present ourselves, you know, the presentation of self in the profile is an art. And um, so we only present those sides of ourselves we think are going to be immediately appealing. And then when people do swipe right, and they do manage to meet in the flesh, um, if things don't go well off the bat, um, you know, it, it's, it might as well be Netflix. It might as well be Spotify. You're just on to the next. And we're not giving things chances to develop. And that, that to me is like, you know, I can recall relationships where they were acrimonious from the start, but they developed into something, you know, I mean, and I don't just mean the kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of relationship where you get off on the fact that you despise each other. I mean that, that people are complicated. And a lot of us are... Um, have been marked by our experience in such a way as to, it takes us a while to come out of our shell. You really have to stay with things. And I, my students display a profound disinclination to stay with anything. Like they'll, they'll bring me projects and um, proposals for a project. And I'll say, you know, there's a lot of insight here, but it needs to be developed in this way and this way and this way. And their immediate response is to say, oh my God, you, you hate it. Well, here I've got another idea. And I didn't say I hated it. Um, and there's this very binary thing which enters the world, which is it's either immediate and total approbation or discard it and start again. And that just isn't how, I, I don't think it's how life works at all. And I, I particularly don't think it's how most of the most valuable experiences we have in life work. We need to pause now for a quick word from our sponsors, but stay tuned, because after the break, Adam and I discuss the psychic impact of living in a world where work demands, crises, and even news of terror can always interrupt our most precious moments. This episode is brought to you by WordPress. 
If you've visited the Hurry Slowly website, you can probably tell that I care deeply about the look and feel of my online presence, which is why I've used WordPress.com to build every website I've created for the past 10 years. I love the freedom and flexibility that the platform gives me, both to style the design of the site and to distribute great content. And the best part about WordPress is that you don't need to be a code or a design expert to use it. WordPress provides all of the tools that you need to get your site up and running, and their crack customer support team is available 24-7. But what I like most is that WordPress also provides built-in SEO and specialized plugins. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do something on my site and thought, is there a WordPress plugin for this? And in my experience, there literally always is. That's the power of having a platform that supports nearly 30% of all the websites on the internet. Plans start at just $4 a month. So head on over to wordpress.com slash hurry slowly to create your website today. That's wordpress.com slash hurry slowly for 15% off a brand new website. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Personally, I find it hard to take action on my ideas unless I have some accountability, a deadline, an audience, an expectation, something or someone that makes it necessary to take action. And one of the easiest ways to quickly create some of that accountability is to go public, to go online. Establishing your domain name is, in a sense, a rite of passage, the way you plant a stake in the ground and say, here it is, this is my idea. And Hover makes the process of finding a domain that matches your passion super simple. Their streamlined search lets you choose from over 400 domain name extensions, and you can easily connect your new domain to a number of popular website builders with just a few clicks. But honestly, my favorite feature is Hover's straightforwardness. Their user interface is clean and easy to use, and they don't nag you with endless upsells at checkout. What you see is what you get a launch pad for your ideas. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. I want to move into the psychic impact of living in a network world. Um, one of my favorite rather ominous sentences from the book is horror finds us wherever we are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You describe this sort of full spectrum awareness that we have now, this kind of low grade persistent awareness of the world and of its suffering that we kind of carry around with us all the time with this kind of smartphone that we have in our pocket. And that's a very, you know, extremely new and very challenging state in which to exist in. Yeah, that sentence arises out of a very particular experience I had, um, which I think many of us will be able to relate to. It was uh, an evening that I was seeing my old friend, Fee. I hadn't seen her in a year and a half or so. And we got together in Old Town Bar, you know, in New York City. And we're in a room full of about 40 people in booths at tables and all of us are drinking and eating at seven o'clock at night or something like that. Um, and there is this convivial buzz in the room, the, the mark of a good 
experience, like something where the environment has been crafted to support exactly the right kind of social interaction. And, you know, there's a wide range of experiences that people are having. Some people at another table have probably just broken up and are crying into their beer, but it is a classic, uh, an iconic urban experience. And it feels good to be there with her and it feels good to be catching up with her. We're having a fantastic conversation. And literally in the blink of an eye, the entire tenor of the room changes and everybody starts looking down at their phones. And what had happened was that the uh, the incident in Paris had just happened, the attack on the Bataclan and the streets around it. And I, um, I think this was the first time that, that Facebook had activated safety check, or at least it was the first time in my experience. Um, you know, somebody had, uh, I had a notification on my phone, which was very unusual because I have almost all notifications turned off. Um, and it said, you know, Francois has marked himself safe from the attack in Paris. And I was like, what attack in Paris? Um, and this was the first time I was exposed to safety check. It was the first time I was exposed to the framing of it. Uh, the language, you know, the sort of generic language, the attack in Paris is a very strange framing. But more than that, um, as upset as I was, um, we would say the temperature in the room dropped by 100 degrees. I mean, there was utter silence for the space of a minute um, that was punctuated only by people who didn't have their smartphones out or had, didn't have them set to vibrate. It was like, what, what's going on? And then this kind of stumble as we all, because Facebook didn't tell you anything about it, you know, we all went immediately to our news sites or to our email to try and find out. And there is the sense in which this device that we have that connects us to one another keeps us immersed in a fabric of experiences that, and, and ordinarily that's wonderful, but it means also that we are completely porous and completely unarmored. So this moment at which you're entirely relaxed and you're in the presence of somebody that you're fond of and you are sharing this sort of classic moment of you know, reconciliation and, and, and everything wonderful that comes along with that. And it's really abruptly punctuated by this vector that, that approaches from outside and completely takes over, completely transforms your, your emotion. You know, it, it just, you know, the cortisol, you know, just gets dumped into your system. The adrenaline gets dumped into your system. And all of a sudden, uh, your evening as you would know, it is over. Now, obviously, it's over in a much less final and much less terrible way than the people who are blown up. I mean, you know, we need to be clear about that. But... Um, there's something heartbreaking about that. Like none of the people in that room necessarily needed to know that we could have found out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining and maybe unfairly so that nobody had, um, you know, really close intimate relationships with people who were directly affected by that. And in New York, you know, given the linkages between New York and Paris, maybe it's not fair to assume that. But there were plenty of other rooms in the world where that same thing happened at that same moment. And, you know, I, I didn't need to know that. I could have very well survived um, until like, going to sleep that night when I, you know, I generally look at the headlines before I go to sleep or something like that. And it would have been terrible then, but not quite in the same way. And I, I think, you know, Facebook has learned that lesson to some degree. They've changed the way in which they frame this. They've changed the kinds of incidents that are included in safety check. And I think they've even changed some of the interface language um, or, or given you the ability to find out more immediately what's going on. Um, but I think there's something perverse about safety check 
it's um, it's a feature that could only have been imagined by a kind of software developer um, who prioritizes information over affect. There's a competing narrative, which is that it's designed to reassure. It's designed to keep people from sitting in that fear when they when you could provide them with a piece of information that would would reassure them and allow them to not worry about things. And I think that's that's a um, a really lovely aspiration, but it takes an engineer who doesn't understand very much about trade-offs to say that, I mean, really, the, the people who are worrying are an edge case. And the ordinary case are the people who have no connection to this event, have really no emotional skin in the game. And the trade-off that is being proposed and that was, in fact, enacted is that to reassure these three people, we're going to utterly disrupt the experience of these 97 people. And that's a design decision, right? All of these things are design decisions. And all of them are hashed out at conference room tables, you know, in um, the presence of people from different work units and business units and, and, and you know, parts of a company. Um, and there's no real advocate in that at least at first, for somebody just representing the unshielded affect of the user who's exposed to that. Somebody at the table thinks it's a bright idea. Somebody else thinks that it's, um, you know, a good business move. Somebody else parses it really quickly and says, yes, we have the technical capability to do that. And it happens. And only thereafter is there some reflection about that, that, wow, this was actually something really traumatic that we did to people in the name of reassurance. And it, it feels like something that only could have happened in our age. Absolutely. Well, and even if we go beyond that example of, of safety check and, you know, of course, a, a horrifying incident that can be quite difficult to talk about, um, it's rather delicate to talk about, this full spectrum awareness pertains to so many different things, right? And, and particularly depending on how many types of notifications I have turned on on right. my phone at any given moment, right? So it could be my porousness to getting, you know, a work email while we're having that, um, you know, great conversation at a bar or, you know, getting a CNN update about, you know, a child being kidnapped, which could make me think about, you know, my own child and their safety and on and on and on and on and on, right? right. This, yeah. this just kind of constant connectivity, constant... Um, ability to be notified about things that have nothing to do with the experience that you're currently engaged in. Um, do you think that there's any type of upside at all to that sort of full spectrum awareness or is it purely negative? Well, I think that we have a duty to be informed citizens of the world, right? Like I need to know about what's going on in Burma. I need to know that there's an ethnic cleansing going on there. Um, but I should be able to choose the time and place and situation in which I find out about that. Um, I need to feel connected to the world, but I should be able to choose the time and place and situation that, that um, makes me connected in that way. I think the notification is the worst idea ever. I think it's something that arises out of business necessity and, you know, like the calendaring app and like a lot of the other features of these things, they're predicated on a model of life that was appropriate to the developers. 
So, you know, people working in these technical technological development concerns in Silicon Valley or in the Pacific Northwest or, you know, back when there was a Nokia in Finland or, or in Seoul, um, you know, they have jobs and jobs are structured and jobs require that the day be parsed up in such and such a way. And we have, you know, we agree on the calendar to be at meetings and um, we need to be notified of these things. So we're good workers. Um, and those things are just not relevant to a great many lives on earth. And yet that becomes the default pattern, um, a pattern that's appropriate to a, a knowledge worker in a multinational corporation becomes the model for all of us. So, you know, we're all offered the same calendar. We're all offered the same way of doing notifications. And it's, it's a, a very situated paradigm. It has nothing to do with the way that people live in a lot of the world. Uh, and the, the blindness or the disinclination to just accept that critique uh, is total. And, you know, it, and then again, like, as you pointed out, like people wind up internalizing that they, they wind up thinking that that's normal and ordinary and that it, you know, having your phone buzz every three seconds to remind you um, of your obligations is in fact, how, how this ought to be done or has been done or should be done. And I just don't think that's the case. You said at the beginning of the interview that you wanted to linger with the melancholy of, you know, sort of the disappearance of this kind of analog world and these analog interactions. Um, what do you think is the value of lingering with that feeling? Well, I'm really selfish about this stuff, right? Uh, I go back to the moments in my life that I've felt the best. I, I'm just really very, it's very simple to me. It's very clear. Like when have I felt the best? You know, when I'm dancing, when I'm eating, uh, when I'm laughing, uh, when I'm running really hard, you know, all these moments where you're in the body that they're not, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be naive enough to say they're not mediated. Of course they're mediated, but, um, they're visceral experiences. And, and those moments as well, when I'm in service to other people, like I, I, I worked at Nokia for two years in a, a senior middle management position for which I was paid obscenely well, obscenely well. And I hated myself and I wanted to die every day of those two years. And I spent 10 days working in a, a church in Occupy Sandy, um, just literally not doing anything particularly intellectual or planning oriented, just helping people bring packages in from the street and sort them into the pews so somebody else could package them and bring them out to households that needed diapers and needed tampons and needed cat food uh, and needed blankets. And I felt better about myself in that role during those moments than I ever have before or since, actually. Um, I think one of the things that our culture deprives us of, many of us of, um, is the feeling that we are able to serve somebody else and to see that land. And to the degree that our technology can offer us those moments, it is a good technology. To the degree that we combine the digital and the analog, the mediated and the visceral into experiences where we're able to be fully present to one another. Um, those things I think are valuable and to be retained or retrieved or extended. 
Over my right shoulder, behind my desk, I have a stack of notebooks that dates back over 20 years. And today, I took my current journal to the coffee shop with me and leafed back through my notes from the past few months. Quotes, thoughts, ideas, realizations. And at least for me, it is only in having this physical record of what I was thinking in the past that I can recognize how far I've come in the present. Without my notebooks, I just don't think I'd be conscious of my progress or my backsliding, as the case may be. And that's what this conversation with Adam really brought home for me. The importance of having these objects that carry tangible traces of our existence. And how immersing ourselves in digital encourages us to give up on these objects. And I'm not just talking about objects with sentimental meaning, like old letters or photographs. I'm talking about objects with existential meaning. My notebooks give me an awareness of myself that I wouldn't otherwise have. Just like helping out during Hurricane Sandy gave Adam an awareness and a sense of rootedness and meaning that he wouldn't have otherwise had. We need those traces. We need to leave our mark on the world. And you have to do that in the flesh. You have to do that in the thinginess of the world. Sometimes digital just doesn't cut it. Next week will be the final installment in season one of Hurry Slowly. And as I've done a few times throughout this season, I'll be taking a moment to share my own reflections on the ideas that have really stuck with me from this first set of 30 episodes on living life at a more sustainable pace. I'll also be announcing some exciting new projects that I have on the horizon, so don't miss it. If you've been a regular listener throughout this season, and you haven't yet left us a review on our iTunes page, I would love it if you took a moment to do so. Even though this season is winding down, another one will soon be on the way, and I would love to keep the momentum going. Your review will help us do that. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. In a sense, the deepest question I have in the book is what kinds of subjects do we become in the presence of these technologies? Um, who are we and, and, and why do we have the desires that we do? And most especially, um, are those desires authentic? Are they the product of what a Marxist might call false consciousness? And if we find that they are, how do we go about reconnecting to that more authentic self buried beneath these imposed desires. This episode was produced by Matt Susich, and our theme music was created by Devin Craig Johnson. If you want to be notified when new episodes come out, or just to stay in touch with me and what I'm working on, you can sign up for my lovingly curated weekly newsletter on the podcast website at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. Thanks again for listening. And remember to hurry slowly.